I am Graham Lynch. This is Comms Day Live and welcome to the show, the first for 2024. Happy New Year. Now, later in this episode, we'll be talking to Dario Betty, who's the CEO of the Mobile Ecosystem Forum from London. But first up, I want to talk about what I think is shaping up to be a major hot issue for telcos in Australia in 2024. That's network resilience. Now, this all stems from the Optus outage late last year, which has prompted a whole lot of um, uh, government inquiries, um, including a Senate inquiry. Politicians ranging from David Pocock to David Littleproud have strong views about network resilience. They're talking about things like domestic roaming and so on. Um, and while the Optus outage has brought this issue to the fore, it's hardly the first time an outage has had a big impact on the telco landscape in Australia. Put, put your mind back to a decade or so ago. You may remember the Photofail incident when the Photofail network basically failed on a systemic basis to handle surging demand from smartphones. Back then, the company lost half a million customers and 9% of its annual revenues in one hit. So in the here and now, they're, they're, while there are strong incentives to keep your network resilient, things have also changed since the photo fail days. Um, we have a much more complicated technology landscape, um, a, a, a much trickier regulatory and policy landscape. And of course, customer expectations have changed a lot since then as well. So to talk all about this, um, I have two partners from the global management consulting firm Carney in the studio. Now, Carney dates back nearly 100 years. It has common origins with McKinsey and Company, um, a couple of billion dollars in annual revenue, and about 5,000 staff worldwide. It's, it's um, a very, very reputable firm, and we're privileged to have Shivani Parekh, who's all the way from Chicago here in Sydney, and Saraba Agawal, who's the Asia Pacific practice leader um, in Melbourne. So, welcome to Sydney, both of you. Thank you, Graham. Great to be here. Thanks, Graham, and Happy New Year. <laughs> you too. Okay, well, let's start off. Now, the reason we're having this discussion, it's prompted by a very interesting report that you guys put out last year titled Network Resilience, a Strategic Imperative for CTOs, CEOs, and Boards. And I, I found it interesting reading, um, and particularly an overriding point that it makes, which is that a basic network outage can have all sorts of broader implications you know, it can even define the legacy of telco executives. And there's a really interesting example in there from Canada um, of a 19-hour outage that ended up costing the, the telco 1% of revenue, 4% of its market cap, and a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. So, you know, an outage might just seem like something minor that could be corrected, but it has all sorts of implications, doesn't it, Sarah? It does, Graham. And uh, network resilience, as we see it, it's not just an operational requirement. It's actually core to brand reputation and customer loyalty for telcos today. And investments in resilience from telcos that typically surge once they have an outage and, and the business case becomes glaringly evident, but we think it needs to be an ongoing investment. And you talked about the Canadian telco and uh, some of the losses they faced. When we advise telco leaders on this, we, we look at three dimensions of uh, value that uh, potentially are at risk from uh, outages like this. One is direct value, which is typically linked to the cost of remediating the outage and liquidating any damages that happen. And it's the smallest value impact category uh, from our perspective. 
The second element is indirect value loss, which is all about customer churn and the impact that this has on long-term brand. But the most significant uh, risk or uh, value at stake is potentially the intrinsic value, which relates to longer-term share value, brand equity, uh, impact on customers, and and the regulatory stance and goodwill that uh, a lot of the telcos enjoy. And, And we think when telco executives think about resilience, they've got to think about all of these dimensions together rather than just the uh, short term and now. Uh, I guess one of the interesting things there too is that we live in a different age compared to, I mentioned Vodafone a decade ago, but we live in an age now where if if an outage occurs, it's all over Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and and what what have you, WhatsApp, (laughs) um, within minutes. And uh, telcos are very, very large bureaucratic companies that often aren't very good at responding to things in minutes. So is is this uh, an issue in in this this sort of day and age? Absolutely it is. And uh, COVID's accentuated this. Post-COVID, customers are always demanding uh, perpetually on networks. Uh, there's no patience. And we joke about it internally, uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, Wi-Fi is probably now uh, number one in that, right? It's the first thing people look for uh, before they look for food. It's do you have Wi-Fi? And that fundamentally changes uh, the expectations of customers. And you mentioned social media. The other place... Uh, that's very, very uh, interesting is down detector. So anyone that's in the telco sector, you look at just the way uh, the conversation and messages spike on down detector whenever there is an outage, that's a short, short sign that something's going wrong somewhere. And when we look at what leading operators are doing uh, in this space to evolve and keep up with the customer expectations, there's three things, right? One, they're setting very, very clear targets on network availability. And uh, they're also defining clear ambitions on what is the maximum amount of outage that they want to aim for, uh, for their customers. The second thing they're doing is they're tracking these on a very, very uh, proactive basis. And the third thing they're doing really well is focusing on communication. Now, telcos uh, traditionally have not been big on communicating with their customers when outages happen, but we think increasingly uh, there's lessons to be learned from other industries. Uh, you look at the hyperscalers, they don't aim for very high availability, interestingly, but every time there's an outage, there's communication actively to the customer. So it's all about communication and restoration and how do you really enhance your muscle to be able to achieve that is what's going to set up telcos for long-term success here. Now, Shivani, one of the really, um, I, I guess, another recent phenomenon that impacts on the ability of telcos to maintain resilience in the networks is the increasing complexity in the operational platforms that work under you have you know APIs and the, the in you know the veritable as a service platforms that they all tap into these days so so how how do they work with this new paradigm mm-hmm. yeah Graham it's really amazing if you think about the dramatic change connectivity has had on our lives in the last 20 years from how we communicate, how we work, how we consume all kinds of information and data in terms of internet doubling, data use more than doubling, devices more than doubling. I mean, it is, the world has changed, but telcos have not changed and they need to figure out how to really accelerate and change their operating model. And this means really being able to pull away from the traditional, I've got a network organization, I've got a retail arm and a consumer org. We really need to think about telcos thinking of becoming more platform players. 
And there are layers of platforms, you know, how you connect, not just on the technology front, but on the emotional front, on the services front. So there's layers of this, but the whole model of how they operate needs to change to fit the new paradigm. Yeah, and I guess ditto, um, some of those points apply to the broader supply chain too, don't they? Um, increasing complexity and, even, you know, just to take one subset of that ecosystem, the open RAN um, world where you have just multitudes of suppliers, it, it does become a, a slightly more difficult task, doesn't it, to maintain that kind of control paradigm over what everything, every component is doing at any time. Absolutely. And it's not just the network supply chain. I mean, that is a great example, but it's also in the retail space. And I think what telcos need to do is figure out how they are connecting emotionally with their customers on the retail front, for sure, because this expectation of having same day delivery, having seamless interactions between a web and app and when you walk into the store, all of this is stuff that the telcos have to figure out. And then when you're in the network supply chains, wherever this is something that you've been dealing with quite a bit, I mean, how do you create that flexibility to get parts and equipment out in the matter of hours when you have an outage? I mean, this is really a key component of your resilience playbook, right? And, and if I may just add to that, uh, Graham and Shivani, the, the other element of this uh, from a uh, network complexity perspective that makes it harder is the pivot to software-defined networks increasingly because that's where a bulk of the issues are going to happen, right? And, and the one uh, thesis we've got is, as telcos, we've got to come to the conclusion that uh, outages are going to happen. It's hard to have a scenario where you say, I'm not going to have any outages. That's not a realistic future. Outages are going to happen, but it's really about, in that software-defined world, how quickly can you pivot? And, and when an outage happens, how quickly can you react, respond, and restore? It's all about that. That's, that becomes the focus. One more piece of the operating model that translates both to the supply chain and overall is the telco use and, and management of data. Think about the incredible amount of data that they have on each and every subscriber and each and every piece of equipment. They know where you are. They know what you're downloading. They know how much time you're spending on each app. And how do they figure out the best way to monetize and leverage that data to give you, the consumer, a better experience? That's a big piece. Okay. Now, uh, reading through um, the report um, that you published, there's quite an extensive treatment of the um, capabilities of artificial intelligence to, to be uh, used to manage outages better and faster, and uh, whilst also maximizing returns on, on investments and resilience. So t tell me a bit more about that and how, how important is it really? We think it's the future, AI ops. Absolutely, we're convinced about that. Right. So uh, there's significant uh, capability that AI ops introduces into uh, telco operators' uh, toolkits in terms of predicting potential problems, being able to uh, detect outages in real time, being able to uh, automatically initiate corrective actions when an outage does happen, and, and really providing the smarts to telcos to be able to action um, on, on a real-time basis. But there are two issues that uh, need to be worked through. Like Shivani said just now, <coughs> there are two cautionary flags. One is AI ops or anything around AI is only as good as the data that you provide into it, right? So if you don't have the right data feeding into AI ops, it's not gonna be, uh, it's not gonna be much value. 
And the second issue is it's in very early stages of maturity. It's going to take time. So uh, it's really about how do you set the foundation now to eventually reap the benefits in the future. We hypothesize that uh, every dollar that you spend in AI ops today is probably, once you get the basic level of resilience in and basic level of redundancy in, it's probably worth more in terms of uh, you know improving your overall resilience than continuing to add more and more and more layers of resilience and redundancy into the physical network. Shivani, I, I wanted to talk about a, a broader topic, I guess, not just the technology behind resilience, but also, I, I guess, for want of a better word, the culture that you need in a, in a telco to deal with this issue. Um, because as, it, you know, as we all know, if you, you can have all the right tools, but if you don't have the right processes, the right people, things can still fail. So how important is culture in dealing with resilience? I'm so glad you asked that because what's so amazing is that while these telcos are built uh, fundamentally on the technology of their networks and the capability of the spectrum that they deploy, really what will drive their success in the future is the ability to capture the cultural change that's needed within the organization. So I'll give you an example. T-Mobile had a, an amazing turnaround over the last decade. And so much of that turnaround when they went from the fourth distant fourth player in a four-player market to now the number two telco in the United States was based on a customer-centric turnaround strategy. And that means shifting the mindset from thinking only about product and features, like my bandwidth speed, my latency, my router, and where that's gonna sit. No, we wanna figure out what customer pain point or issue are we solving for? We're solving for your need to be able to have a remote workforce. We're solving for your need to be able to have telehealth, or any other application. So you really have to think about what is the customer need that you're solving for and how is this technology going to deliver it? And what happens is that in these telecom companies, you've got a whole swath of employees, managers, and up and down throughout the organization that have grown up inside the environment of that organization. So they don't have other perspectives. So how do you shift the mindset? And for me, I think it really starts with leadership and then it also starts with thinking about the customer need and designing around that versus product and feature first. And, and if I may add to that, uh, Shivani, the other thing uh, that is very common across telcos today is even though there's been the big pivot to agile, there's different ways of working, et cetera, there is still the tendency to fall back into thinking in our specific boxes or silos and not having the true end-to-end -end customer view and, and we think that's pretty central uh, to long-term success. And, and the way you get that is really by fixing the culture. It's not just uh, a process thing. We think at the core of it, it's a culture thing because uh, yes, you can have the process, but then you've got to overlay the cultural change. And only then will you really uh, think about uh, the end-to-end -end and the customer first uh, very, very differently. Uh, I guess as an extension of, of some of those themes that you both just mentioned then, if telcos don't get resilience right, there's obviously the potential for blowback, isn't there, from governments, from competition and consumer regulators. Um, you know, in Australia, we've already seen as a result of the Optus outage some discussion around mandating domestic mobile roaming, which you know, is an elephant gun perhaps on a, on a problem of an ant. But you know, these are the types of things which can happen if, if it's perceived that telcos aren't getting their act together on this. Absolutely. 
I mean, you think about it, our connectivity is almost, it's an essential service. And I think COVID really demonstrated that for us. We were only connected to each other through our devices and our ability to communicate when we were all quarantined in our own homes. And if telcos don't figure this out, you've already got these different players on the edges taking bites of their revenue, whether it's a hyperscaler, media companies. So it's it's an imperative for telcos to figure this out and get this right. It's not necessarily through more government regulation. It's a fundamental responsibility of these companies that represent so much criticality in how humans now behave, operate, and live. Yeah, and if I may add to that, Shivani, uh, it is, uh, like you said, a pretty essential service now. But we've also got to give kudos to the telcos. Through COVID, it was hard times. But here in Australia and in many other parts of the world, we operated seamlessly. The transition back to being fully, fully virtual, fully digital, all enabled by our mobile phones and our home internet connections, it worked perfectly, almost. And uh, we've got to give them kudos for that. But in terms of sort of where uh, the the risk is from a government regulation perspective, yes, uh, there is going to be active conversations and those obviously are happening in Australia, but eventually you've got to get the balance right. Yeah, because uh, there is a business that needs to be run and there's uh, value on all sides. And, and, and I guess it'll play out between government and the and the operators. But it's something that customers will also demand uh, from a from a expectation perspective. And if you don't meet that expectation, it's going to play through anyways, back to the sources of value we talked about up front, the direct, the indirect and the intrinsic. It's going to play out some way or the other. We used to have an adage within our firm, and I'm sure it's elsewhere, uh, but are you going to be a pipe or a portal? And you can just be that utility providing that underlying connectivity and infrastructure, or you can really be the portal and the connection into the customer. And I think that's where the opportunity is for the telcos. Okay, so taking all those points you've made across the last 16 minutes on board, um, what can a telco do starting Monday morning to improve their performance on this? They have to start with leadership and culture change. They have to think about being a technology platform player. They have to figure out how they're going to use this massive amount of data that they have a very exclusive access to. And ultimately, they have to think about the value that they're providing in society, which is an essential service in changing the way we live, work, and consume. And I would think we frame this as institutional resilience. It's got multiple facets to it. Uh, It's got an operating model facet that we've spoken about. It's got a supply chain facet. It's got a cultural facet. And it's got a network facet. But all of those are equally important. And it's this theme of institutional resilience and how a telco really foolproofs their future uh, is the bit that... uh, all telco executives should be focused on starting tomorrow, to your question. Okay, well, that's network resilience. It's a big topic, and somehow I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting it many times before the year is out. Thank you very much for coming into the studio, Shivani and Sarava. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Graham. Lovely talking to you. Now, we don't talk about smartphones very often here at Comms Day Live, and the honest reason for that is that over the past few years, 
smartphones have been incredibly boring. <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of innovation taking place in that space. And you know, every every time you hear about a new new version of a smartphone, it's you know, a slightly different camera size or pixel range or something like that. Not not very exciting. But all that may have changed with Samsung's new announcement of its S24 range overnight. Um, apparently, I haven't seen one. Um, I'm not privy to these things, but uh, apparently features some quite incredible inbuilt features. So to get the lowdown on it, we are joined by the chief editor of Comms Day, Mr. Rowan Pierce. Welcome, Rowan. So, yeah, so it's quite interesting. I think, um, like you said, for a while, the smartphone kind of um, upgrade cycle feels like it's been dying off. We've seen telcos complaining about kind of falling handset revenue. And obviously, we had this kind of like inflection point with 5G where there was kind of a bit of an impetus for people to upgrade. But there hasn't really been anything since then. But what we're seeing now with the kind of S24 is analysts coming out and saying, well, actually, maybe the kind of integration of onboard um, artificial intelligence features into these phones might actually get people over the line in terms of spending the big bucks to actually upgrade their handsets. So it's quite interesting. If you look at some of the features... Um, some of the, the big ones that Samsung's been touting are um, uh, two-way, two-way real-time call translation, um, also a kind of feature, very interesting, which is just, it's like a, a transcription and translation on the phone itself, which doesn't rely on cellular data um, or Wi-Fi, um, which gives you a kind of sense of the kind of, uh, uh, I guess, the processing power that they're actually packing into the handset. Um, so what's going to be interesting is, is this going to see... Um, I guess people willing to open their wallets and maybe dish their kind of like aging Google Pixel in my case. You just mentioned the core translate feature, you know, for example, and there's a few of them. And some of these services are things that particular network operators um, have been trying to offer to differentiate themselves over the past few years. Network-based functionality that, you know, the, 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 the handset is just a dumb conduit to these things. But this really changes the equation, doesn't it? Now you've got some of these for want of a better term, intelligent network type features now being resident in the handset. It, 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 it could have some quite interesting implications, couldn't it? Yeah, well, I, I wonder if there's going to be kind of, a, I guess, a there's a degree of tension involved between kind of telcos and the handset makers in some ways because it's like you're giving, like Samsung's basically taking control of all these kind of features that might otherwise be the purview of the um the network operators. I mean, obviously, you're kind of alluding to Optus, which has their kind of um, their living network suite of features, which has been trying to kind of integrate into the basic act of like sending a message or, or making a phone call, like some of these kind of like smart features, um, like call translation or like you know automatic kind of um, another one Optus does is you know automatic note taking that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting if like we see. I mean, obviously, Samsung's a you know moving early on this as they. I mean, one of the biggest smartphone makers in the world, you kind of expect them to, but obviously they're going to be followed, I imagine, by all the other players as well. So is this going to just become a kind of common feature of um, an everyday smartphone eventually? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point because um, when I made my comment at the top of this conversation about how boring smartphones have become, I actually had Apple in mind. <laughs> the new iPhones come out every year and... Yeah, they're, they're just tweaks in specifications to my eyes, and I, I don't sort of really see the value in, in the annual upgrade. This really puts the onus on Apple to do something itself, and you kind of back them. You know, when Apple were pushed into a corner in the market, they tend to react in a pretty strong way. So you would expect that the the iPhone, um, the, the next iteration of the iPhone, might incorporate some of these features as well. 
Yeah, I uh, I guess it is interesting because the focus has like historically been really on like hardware innovation, but it has just been it felt to me anyway like I'm not really a smartphone guy, <laughs> which is like terrible thing to say is like someone who writes a telco for a living. But it's like it's like it's really been kind of incremental hardware features and stuff, and also I guess um, I uh, I guess there's a certain kind of um, expense involved in like um, hardware manufacturing too. If you can put the focus on software, it opens up new opportunities maybe for the handset makers. Yeah, I, I thought you just made a good point before too about Samsung sort of moving a bit into telco territory, you know, in terms of those value-added services. It's something that you can see they're doing across other lines of their business. And, and I, I specifically talk about their connected television business, where if, if you have a, a recent model Samsung TV, um, you've got complete access to their own um, if effective multi-channel and on-demand video network. You know, they, they, they are a broadcaster in the way that a Foxtel or a Netflix are. You know, they have a whole suite of TV channels with news and drama and, and so on, and um, on-demand movies and so on. But the, the important thing is, is that they put this front and centre on their homepage and, and you know, effectively competing and overshadowing um, you know, some of the rival over-the-top services like your Netflixes and your Amazon Primes and and particularly the free TV apps. And, of course, they've kicked up a big stink about this and would like to have a framework to put some regulation around this. But it is interesting, isn't it, that um, no one is satisfied in this ecosystem with their specific lot. They are all looking at opportunities to monetize, you know, outside of their um, original playing field. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Have you just planted the seeds, Graham, of like, uh, uh, could we see a, a telco prominence framework legislated in Australia, which is obviously what's happening on the TV front because the, the, the free-to-air commercial broadcasters are obviously very upset about the fact that commercial TV um, sets come integrated with access to a whole heap of content for free and kind of um, they're worried that they're just going to like obviously lose advertising revenue. So it is, a, you know, a vaguely analogous situation. I agree, I think. And it's going to be kind of interesting to um, see how it plays out. Well, so let's, let's see what happens there. I guess this is something that's going to play out over the coming years as we see to what extent this influences market share and, and market size. Thank you very much for joining us, Rowan. I am joined by Dario Betty, who's the CEO of the Mobile Ecosystem Forum. Now, for those of our listeners in Australia and New Zealand who aren't too familiar with the MEF, it is a global trade body that acts as an impartial and authoritative champion for addressing issues affecting the broadening mobile ecosystem. It's been going for 24 years. So uh, a, a venerable organisation. So thanks for joining us, Dario. It's uh, lovely to be here, Graham. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, now the reason we're talking is that you've put out a very interesting list of 10 issues that you think will, will top the regulatory agenda across telecommunications and media in 2024. Um, it's a very interesting list and a few of them caught my eye. So I was hoping to have a, a, a discussion with you <laughs> about some of your ideas. And I, I, was, I was struck, first of all, by a, a point you made that you see regulation as having turned a corner in 2020 and that you think over the next few years we're going to see a lot more intervention and fragmentation across local markets in regulation. So what are you thinking there? Yes, and, and, and you're right. We, we looked at uh, what's happened in 2024, but it's, it's, a, it's a bigger trend 
we probably we are trying to, to to discover there. Well, I'm as an observer, and sometimes we are asked to comment on that, but we're mostly observer on math. Uh, we like to tell what we see in the world globally. And we've seen how regulation kind of moved its overall um, identity in face of men. Before, it was meant to be uh, keeping uh, overall uh, safety in, 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 in terms of some of consumer intervention. Very light touch, however, because the majority of uh, regulation was to stimulate the competition. We, it all started in the year 2000 when somehow we, we dismantled some of the regulation to let the internet arrive and really bring the great choice, the great new services and efficiency we, we've seen. So it's still in the 2010, we were still building you know, the new internet, which is really was dismantling what it was before. All of a sudden though, we started seeing that not all of that is good within the internet. And some of the big axiom we had before were now being challenged, should we follow that? Now, and that's both in terms of some of the competitions. We've seen some very large company emerging, and some of them are becoming potentially a challenge competition. That's what the European Union has done, uh, specifically with the Digital Markets Act and Digital Service Act, trying to bring more competition in itself in the services. But there, I would equally say that what the FCC most recently is doing, for instance, is looking a bit more at the impact on consumers which is a, it's, it's a new thing, I would say, obviously, not that new, but in terms of emphasis, it's potentially new. And and I would say that even in, and you can tell me more about that, but even in Australia, what I've seen uh, recently in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the activity around SMS protection, for instance, in Australia, all of that shows that there is something that needs to be done outside the normal competition and so on. On top of that, and... There's more of it we could say, but on top of that, the political order is changing a bit. The idea that it had to be a global uh, internet. Well, uh, China and Russia showed how you can separate that. They really separated the infrastructure-wise, but also in terms of uh, overall rules uh, from the rest of the internet. And the idea that there should be, there's no such thing as a global organization that can monitor and check um, has now been put under scrutiny by many. And and that goes, we do a consumer trust study every year. We cover, this year would be the 10th year, we're just starting the new version. But we have seen how even the consumers are now starting to ask additional involvement from the regulators. 67% of the consumers are saying, please do something because there are certain things we don't like. And there is an entire list, which is more of a consumer perspective, you know, rather than the market dynamics we usually talk about. But nevertheless, it is there. Um, so we've seen the regulator do it, but it's really also the politicians having to respond to um, what are more country market specific issues. So, yes, many more uh, of these. In UK, uh, the, 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 the parliament released a, a new set of law, which pretty much said you now have to monitor all this internet stuff and, and look at the impact of consumers or specifically on, on, on the youth, you know, of this market. and and put together some rules and they put together some rules as an interesting thing Ofcom which is a regulator has now integrated and they're still trying to understand exactly what they have to do yeah. <laughs> we will see that too now what of your other predictions and, and not necessarily um, too many steps removed from from the one regarding regulation is that you see you you see a, a trend towards consolidation 
um, partly as a result of competitive pressures, but also the need for more investment and, and so on. So what, what do you see happening there? Well, it's interesting to see the the overall competition it could be seen on on multiple front, and and one of them I would say that's the original remit of uh, those regulators from the two thousand is open up uh, on telecoms, made uh, release more license, you know, make this not a monopoly because we've seen some of the inefficiency of the monopoly, and that really worked. I mean, congratulations to to all the countries that have done that, because today we have better you know, better connections, better coverage, uh, lower prices. Um, but the idea that lower prices was necessarily a good thing. It could probably be a challenge in some of those uh, markets where prices that have really, I don't want to say bottom up, but, but we've seen a massive uh, you know, affordability of telecom services, luckily for all of us, is, is much more uh, great. But the, if you look at the EBITDA, of the ability of uh, companies to reinvest and telecom is really very hungry in terms of capital and reinvention right now. We're looking at new 5G and 6G coming and more complications, AI, etc. Um, well, that is growing, out of, it's still keeping very high. The overall uh, cash generation, the profitability is lower. And sometimes you, you come in to ask is, how can you continue affording these great leaps in terms of technology while your overall uh, revenue generations and your overall average revenue per user is kind of a bottom up. So that's it. That's finished. You you don't you don't get much uh, faster than that. There was a great opportunity in IoT. If, okay, there's no more people we can sell things to, and that's pretty much what we can sell to them. Let's go and sell to things. Uh, but for telecoms, that has not been able to capture is a lot. I mean, there's some traffic, but there's no additional services. Yeah, it's very low value. Yeah, high numbers, low value. Yeah. I know there's a, you know lots of sims out there that are linked things, but the overall you know revenue generated by that is disappointingly low overall. And you should also say that some of the value has moved away from what was a telco generation connection in go back in the year in 2000. Getting broadband was in itself hmm. the biggest thing. And then, but right now it's not just the broadband. You you probably thinking about getting your video on demand services, you're thinking of getting your software as a service. In the year 2000, yeah. the internet was not monetized. It was advertising. Today it's monetized. But the telecoms have not been able to capture that. Well, some of them, there are always exceptions, et cetera. Now, back to what we are saying is, so there's a big bill to be uh, spending. And in, uh, I think, countries such as Australia and Malaysia, uh, launching new networks has seen how potentially you need to invent new ways of doing it. And that is another work, a form of what I would say is a consolidation. It's it's a consolidation of network, which is happening in many places. So even separate companies are now building the same network, or it's a consolidation of uh, companies. So different companies are now merging themselves within telecom to operate as one. But whether you're looking from one perspective or the other, it's really these economic questions at yeah. the bottom of it. How do we afford the next huge leap, which we potentially we might want, but we as consumer are now ready to pay a premium for the five or the six or the seven G right now because we are pretty happy on what we are getting as as consumers. What we do want it is you know massive uh, availability and speed and fast, but pretty much we we don't put a big price of it. It's a hygiene factor. Just make yeah. sure that the network. So based on that, the key question is, are we, do we need to review what was a magic number? In some countries, should we have four at network operators per country? Mm. 
it turns out the countries are big and small. Some of them have got huge territory, and I'm looking and thinking of the geography of Australia again. Mm. Huge territory, you know, spread uh, of uh, networks. How are we going to deal with that? Luckily, again, network solutions are coming to the rescue, but still, it's very difficult to imagine that every country will go down the same route of we need to maintain the de facto number of players. Mm. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of uh, a lot of changes. Already there have been, if you look at US, effectively, the consolidation has taken places and it's not finished. In Europe, so has taken places and has not finished, etc. Et yeah. Okay. And one of your other predictions, and this really jumped out at me, was that you see an appreciation starting to emerge for the value of privacy and starting to be reflected in laws and rules. And, and we, we had a, a big, we've had a couple of big data breaches in Australia over the last year where you know, millions of customer records just went on the open internet. So that's become quite a big issue here, but you, you're seeing this manifesting across the world. So what, what are you seeing there? Well, it's very unfortunate. And there, there are two sides of that, I would say. One is how good we are at keeping data and keep it secure. I mean, data is something, our, our life is likely based on data. We can now transport our identity services and so on, which means we, we have data somewhere. But how good is being protected? That question of cybersecurity is now much more stringent and very, very important. The other question is the structure of how we collect and utilize data a kind of architecture where we don't think about it much, but when we go to a website, we assume that potentially people are following us. Uh, when we go and sign up to a TNCs, well, that turns out that the majority of people are not particularly happy or they don't feel very comfortable with that. As a matter of fact, 67% actively avoid sharing their information when somebody's asking online. Now that shows that, well, wait a second, this is the data economy. And the data economy has got the majority, the large majority, and this is a growing, we, again, we, we check every year, this is a growing number, is resisting sharing their information, which is what, you know, they got so much value out of it. Well, that's a point. They see that sometimes they're being potentially given too much value, but this transaction is not fair, or they don't see the transparency. Mm -hmm. All of those things put together, put a lot of questions. I mean, I would sometimes refer to it, we have a giant, but we clay feet a bit. You know, how do we know that this is going to be the way that the industry will remain? And I might be wrong because I only put point of the fact, but, you know, that is a giant and that has been growing over the last 20 years. And some people will say, look at it, it's working. Until when? That'll be a question. Because, and that question has grown. And so we have seen in the past, at least with the GDPR in Europe, that has generated a lot of debate. Now, that's not the solution to it all, but at least it put a, a framework behind it. The USA is is considering in different California, etc. It's always been considered something like that. But again, and if you look at the different activities, we are now seeing stricter interventions. Whether you are receiving, you know, robocalls, or whether you're receiving SMS, which are unwanted for, the users are getting a bit concerned. Or whether there are big scandal about political interference with Cambridge Analytics, all these words that involved uh, about five, six years ago, um, so much of the US-UK uh, political impact. Uh, you might see the more question being asked about that. And so the regular 
regulatory intervention on something so complicated, which is not very easy to maintain and to regulate, it's now growing, growing uh, higher and higher. So the Middle East is intervening. Um, Africa, in uh, the Popular Act, South Africa has got a law. Uh, Europe, as I said, is reviewing GDPR potentially for its new version. So definitely, I think things are there. But back to what we started, it's probably big consumers that are going to drive eventually some of that because it's you you we used to talk about, about a silent majority because we looked at how the uh, concern was growing over time and at one point it became a majority of people were concerned about that data and by people i mean smartphone user should qualify it's not everybody but it's a majority of us in any way it's about 60 70 percent in most areas uh, and now out of those 88 percent would consider themselves worried about how their data is used it's and it's a question of how is it used is back to your original question it's what do you collect why do you collect it mm. but also next to it is how good are you at keeping it safe because <laughs> it's there you know because at least i know that you have it and what do we know only every now and then i get received a, an email unfortunately said oh we lost all of your details including your credit cards and i thought Okay, but did I know that even that you had my credit card? So yes, maybe I did take something like that. So um, this level of in, of interaction from the consumers, but and and sometimes you know our politicians, our consumers themselves, they're listening, but they're equally being in, in, um, impacted. I remember what had happened si recently in Singapore, and I'm saying that a few years ago when we had big phishing attacks, and and all that generated a big debate internally to the. Uh, to the country. Interestingly, fishing had been happened for so long, but it did impact a few people that became very vocal, and then it became nationwide news. Mm. And I think sometimes those those elements might re replicate themselves, and uh, we will see. I think we're very close to have something big in data, and that is probably going to be catal the catalyst of all of this is going to be artificial intelligence. No. In terms of if there is something that is a big consumer, the big eater of data, will be artificial intelligence. Mm. And I look at artificial intelligence with a lot of excitement. Equally, though, we've now seen what are the rules of artificial intelligence? How are they allowed to use some of the data outside? Mm. And all of those questions of permissions. And can they replicate my voice? Maybe. Who owns it? And it's all, all of those things. So what we've seen within uh, the concept of, it's not just privacy and security, but the concept of data is where we identified identity of data as a new stage. So yeah. we need to identify a piece of data. Who belongs to Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Our, our definitions of intellectual property are clearly no longer fit for purpose, are they, in this new era? We, we, we will be, um, again, watching and seeing. The debate is very exciting. Mm. I think that concept of identity, I would say, the identity of things is very important. The yeah. identity of death is very important. The identity of people is very important. All those identity questions are definitely not being part of the internet right now. Yeah, no, that's the identity is what you've identified as your fourth big prediction, that there's going to be a, a big focus on this and a need for a debate around it. I find it interesting that by a process of serendipity, my mobile phone number has become a key identity driver for me because of two-factor authentication to establish identity. It's usually 
the ability to show that I'm on this phone number that determines whether I'm real or not <laughs> to an organization I'm dealing with. So we, we, we live in very interesting times, don't we, in that regard? And and that's interesting. Uh, we How we matched the two uh, industry together, as you were saying. So we have internet with our concept of identity, but we have a phone network. It's all about, you know, managing and, 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 and diverting information to a specific device. Um, so they came together. Guess where the criminals out there are going now? Now, two-factor authentication was the best way to manage, you know, to make sure that you are the person you're saying you are, because you at least had something in your hand, the devices, and you had a process to recognize yourself in that device. Um, that's not true as much. I mean, it's still the, potentially the best way to identify yourself and, and, uh, and, and protect yourself. But uh, what we are now seeing in terms of the uh, and social engineering people are trying to to share that identifier in other ways and people are trying to get uh account your your account your your bank account and so on and and people are wondering well do we need to build something else which is even better the good news is there are things that are better uh, and not everybody needs to worry about with two-factor authentication keeps on using two-factor authentications but definitely we need to build something next uh, and so the question remains. So, great way. If you're serendipity, you talked about. We might find something else which is very serendipitous. Um, and then some of them, even better, is going to be. Uh, we've now seen how the operators, the telco operators, are uh, now linking through APIs in the background that information without you having to potentially read an SMS and yeah. stuff like that. So better things are happening and pass keys, etc. But it goes back to the architecture. Unless we find a better way to do it at scale, and uh, we're now going to be asked about identity many, many more times because many more of the services are moving in software. And if you are like me, you're spending a lot of time using your mobile phone just as your authenticator, just picking it up to be able to use it. That's probably not going to scale to the next level of integration of services and yeah. so on. Um, we will see. And as I say, the industry is building up new things. Okay. Well, that's Dario Betty, the CEO of the Mobile Ecosystem Forum. He, he's outlined a lot more thinking on those four predictions, plus six more, on um, his website at mobileecosystemforum.com. And thank you for joining Comms Day Live, Dario. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.